And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of any, anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. When Jesus was asked, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle Paul writes, love is the fulfillment of the law. Despite our failures to keep God's law perfectly, let's have comfort by looking to God who is loving and faithful. In Micah 7, verses 18 to 20, we read, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. As our response, let come before him. We'll continue with the series on Jonah. We will be reading from Jonah 2 shortly. But let's first turn to Matthew 12, verses 38 to 42, where Jesus Christ refers to Jonah chapter 2.
I want to bring your attention to the fact that Jesus Christ compares his death and resurrection to Jonah's experience in the belly of the fish for three nights and three days. Matthew chapter 12 is on page 1039 in your pew Bibles. Starting from verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of this earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. In preparation, the text for the sermon is Jonah chapter 1, verses 17, and chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2 is on page 983 of your pew Bible. Page 983. Read from the last verse, verse 17 of chapter 1. There we read. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed up upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So far... After the sermon, we'll sing hymn 33. 
It would be helpful to keep your Bibles open to Jonah 2 because I'll be referring to it throughout the sermon. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know if you remember how I started the sermon on Jonah 1, but I told you that the Jewish people read the book of Jonah on the Day of Atonement. And they identify themselves with Jonah, and they say to themselves, we are Jonah. And that's where I want to begin the sermon on chapter 2 as well. Even in chapter 2, we are Jonah. I know that chapter 2 is the chapter where Jonah is thrown into the sea, and he gets to spend three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Perhaps you're wondering, what are the chances of me being thrown into the sea or being swallowed up by a fish and surviving? But I would even argue that the journey that Jonah goes through is a journey that each Christian experiences. And I hope you could agree with me by the time I'm done. So let's begin with the theme and points. The theme of this sermon is Salvation belongs to the Lord, taken from the last verse of Jonah's prayer. We will consider two points. In the first point, we will consider salvation from physical death, and in the second, salvation from spiritual death. Let's begin by asking where Jonah is in this story. In the previous chapter, Jonah was thrown into the sea. And the last verse of chapter 1 records that God appointed a fish to swallow up Jonah. The first verse of chapter 2 tells us that Jonah is in the belly of the fish. And what, about, what I'm about to preach on is something that we've been waiting for and looking for in chapter 1. Finally, we see Jonah praying. Chapter 2 records Jonah's prayer, which he said while he was in the belly of the fish. And how this prayer is written can be confusing, so I want you to pay close attention. He is in the belly of the fish, but the, some of the content of his prayer refers back to well, when he was drowning in the sea, in the depths of the sea. So the content of the prayer has both what he experiences in the sea and also when he was, what he is experiencing in the belly of the fish, when he was swallowed up by the fish. It's clear from what he's describing that he was drowning. Jonah was sinking deeper and deeper into the depths of the sea. As we've seen, there's this progression, this descent from further and further away from God, and now he's descending into the depths of the sea. He says in verse 2 that he was cast, sorry, verse 3, that he was cast into the heart of the seas. He then gives us a very graphic imagery. In verse 5, we read, weeds were wrapped about my head. That tells me that he is reaching the bottom of the sea where the seaweeds are growing. Can you imagine how that would have felt like? I used to go to swimming a lot in the ocean, coming from a port city in Korea. And there's something about the ocean that I'm not too fond of. 
I'm not a fan when I accidentally touch seaweed at the bottom with the bottom of my foot. And I think seaweed touching the bottom of my foot is bad enough. And here Jonah is saying that seaweed, that weeds were wrapped about my head. You could imagine that what Jonah is experiencing is quite unpleasant. But the slimy feeling of seaweed is not something that he would be concerned about because he's dying. He says in verse 5, the water is closed in over me to take my life, my life. And in verse 7, my life was fainting away. He was running out of oxygen. It's an absolutely terrifying and urgent situation. This is an emergency. He didn't have much time left. At this last moment, he says in verse 7, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you. Now, what could Jonah possibly expect from the Lord? There isn't going to be any ships going nearby due to the recent storm. The sea was raging just a moment ago until he was thrown into the sea. He has reached the bottom of the ocean, as he recounts in verse 6, that he was at the roots of the mountains. And if it's true that people have flashbacks about their lives at the last in near-death experiences, this is the time that he would be having one. All he can do is just think back to the things that he has done in his life, remember his loved ones one last time, and perhaps ask for forgiveness from the Lord. Death is certain. Jonah recalls in verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed up upon me forever. Forever. He thought he would be at the bottom of the sea forever. Humanly speaking, there is no hope. As far as Jonah can tell, there's nothing he can do himself. That's for sure. However, verse, verse 6 continues. He writes, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Yet you. It does, does that sound familiar? But God. This is a biblical pattern. When God intervenes, there is deliverance. And this is what I want to start burning into your brain. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It didn't belong to Jonah. It didn't belong to the sailors, nor the circumstances, or anything else. Salvation belongs to God alone. As we read at the last verse of chapter 1, God appoints a fish. God hears Jonah's prayer and appoints a fish to swallow up Jonah. Even then, Jonah hasn't really escaped death, has he? The Lord spared him from drowning, but now he's in the belly of the fish. Imagine how things were in the fish. I think most of us have an incorrect picture of how it was in the belly of the fish. I can think of two sources. 
that feeds into how we think about Jonah in the belly of the fish. And here is the first one. Have you watched Pinocchio? There's a big whale called Monstro that swallows up Mr. Geppetto, the puppet maker who made Pinocchio. Monstro, Monstro the whale, was such a big whale that he swallows up the entire boat. So in the whale, Mr. Geppetto is still on a boat. He's, he's fishing, he has lamps and a desk and so on. There's lots of space. Is that how Jonah was? Probably not. And the second source are drawings of Jonah in the fish. Perhaps you've seen them on a story Bible or a children's Bible or you Googled it online. Usually he's portrayed as kneeling in the fish and he's praying. But Jonah describes the belly of the fish in verse 2 as the belly of Sheol. The belly of Sheol. That is the realm of the dead or the grave. And think of how a grave is. Not everyone in Israel could afford a stone-cut tomb. Most people were buried in the ground. So what, we need, what needs to be in our mind as we think about Jonah in the belly of the fish is a grave. And if you thought having seaweed around his head was bad, Let's think about how things might have been in the fish. First, I'm no expert, but I would suspect that it smelled very fishy. Most likely, there would have been total darkness. Things would have been pitch black. And if he put his hand in front of him, he would have not been able to tell any difference. And that's if and that is if he can hold his hand up. What if there wasn't enough space? What if he was pressed against some organ of some kind of wall and gets bumped around, bumped around wherever the fish moves? It's not a pleasant situation at all. What if Jonah was claustrophobic? And if he wasn't, he surely would have de- developed one after this. It's a grave, the belly of Sheol. And for how long? Three days and three nights. To add to all the horror, the, po- the passage doesn't make it clear that Jonah knew whether how long he was going to be in the fish. It's the experience of being buried alive He's as good as dead. And some say that Jonah did die. That's why Jesus compares his death to Jonah being in the belly of the fish. So if he is buried alive, what hope is there? Yet God heard Jonah's prayer and brings Jonah up from the pit. And this is the biblical biblical pattern. God's almighty power is most clearly displayed in hopeless situations. 
God's almighty power is most clearly displayed in hopeless situations. He he turns a place of death into a place of salvation. (laughs) Through Jonah's experience, God gives a glimpse of what he's planning to do for his people. Imagine people, the Israelites, meeting Jonah after he has experienced this. Imagine how it was like when the Israelites heard Jonah recount his story, this miraculous story, and how people would have marveled and praised God. But do you think the Israelites knew that they would have understood what God was going to do to death? Some might have, but it wasn't very obvious. Otherwise, we would not have the Sadducees who denied the resurrection of the dead. But for us, the resurrection of the dead is certain, isn't it? What God has done in the belly of the fish, he does in the grave. The grave, the symbol of inevitable death, becomes the symbol of resurrection. How? Because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And have you thought about how powerful God is? This passage displays God's power. The fish vomiting out, vomiting out Jonah is a vivid and powerful imagery. Jonah didn't struggle out of the fish. Upon God's command, Jonah was expelled from the fish. The belly of the fish couldn't handle Jonah, and so it was with the grave. Death could not hold on to Christ. Christ birthed forth triumphantly as soon as the third day came, as soon as the prophecies were fulfilled. On Easter morning, the grave was empty. The resurrection of Christ is what, is what this passage is pointing to. When the scribes and Pharisees were seeking a sign from Jesus, he says, no sign will be given to it, to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And he fulfilled his word and rose again. Congregation, do you believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually happened? I'm not saying that you should live as if Jesus Christ rose. My point, my point isn't that it's emotionally and mentally healthy, for you to believe that Jesus Christ died and rose. In fact, whether we believe it or not makes no difference to the truth that Jesus died and rose. What I'm saying is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical fact. The disciples were there when Jesus died. When Christ arose, he appeared to his disciples. Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5, that Christ appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. 
Then he adds, then he adds that most of them are still alive. As if to say that if you don't believe my words, you can check with these brothers whether it actually happened. Because they're still alive. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a powerful fiction or a myth people came up with because they saw how beneficial and powerful the story can be to people's mental health. The Gospels and the ancient Near Eastern myths are written in a totally different way. You can check for yourself and compare these if you want. The resurrection is not a product of, of a few people hallucinating. Jesus Christ appeared to more than 500 people. More than 500 people at one time altogether witnessed this. It's a historical fact. It's a historical event. Why does that matter to you and me? Because with this historical truth comes the theological truth that Christ is our first fruit. Christ is the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. So what does that mean? If he is the first fruit, that means there are more fruits to follow. Christ has already risen, and it's our turn now. Those who believe in Jesus Christ will be resurrected. Do you believe this? How the apostles lived and died fits well with what they witnessed, doesn't it? If Christ hasn't been raised, Paul says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. The apostles, the disciples didn't fear death. They lived and died knowing that they will be resurrected. I mean, how could they not? They saw the risen Christ. They heard him. They touched him. They ate breakfast with him. And he was their guarantee that they too will be risen. It's same for us. Do you believe that? We must really hold on to this truth specifically since we are too familiar with death and funerals. We're all dying. If the Lord doesn't come in our lifetime, we will all die. Death closes all. But salvation belongs to the Lord. Look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our first fruit, and take comfort if, especially if you are struggling with the reality, the frailty of life, if you yourself are facing death, or a loved one is facing death. A glorious future is waiting for us. Let that truth captivate your mind. Death is just an entry to eternal life. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Think about how wonderful that is. And may God nurture that hope in our hearts. God will save us 
from physical death. So far, we we focused we focus on Jonah's physical life being threatened, but God's salvation has another aspect, namely salvation from spiritual death. And by spiritual death, I mean God's suffering the wrath of God. If you read closely, Jonah's prayer also contains elements of spiritual death. In verse 4, he says, I am driven away from your sight. I am driven away from your sight. Now what does that mean? Has he become physically distant from God? No, Jonah knows that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Jonah knows Psalm 139. He knows that God is always with his people. In fact, God's people cannot escape his presence. And he would have known this verse, if I make my bed in the depths, in the depths you are there. And he is in the depths and he is there. He even said that the Lord is the maker of the sea. And now he is in the sea. And he says, I am driven away from your sight. What's happening is, is that from his near-death experience, Jonah, gets, Jonah realized that there is a distance between himself and God. He senses something of a spiritual death. What he is experiencing physically actually happened, but it also acts as a metaphor, and it also acts as a metaphor of what is happening spiritually. In the previous chapter, Jonah himself addressed God as the God of heaven. God is in heaven, and he has been going down further and further away from God, and he's reaching the bottom, and he has reached the bottom of the sea. So this is describing a spiritual reality. It's true, it's true that Jonah is being driven away from the Lord, from his sight. But by whom? Is God driving Jonah away? No. It's Jonah's disobedience that is driving himself away from God. He ignored God's direct command to go to Tarshish. And this was a personal command given to him. And he fled to the opposite direction. So he was sent to Nineveh. He went to Tarshish. So everything Jonah is experiencing, the near drowning and being stuck in the belly of the fish, he deserves rightly. He deserves that. But the gospel is that even now, God keeps pursuing Jonah. He's sending hardships and afflictions so that Jonah might call out to him. Jonah realized that. He wrote in verse 3, You cast me into the deep, into the hearts of the sea. And writes, your waves and your billows passed over me. 
He's confessing that it was God who cast him into the deep. And the waves and billows that swept over Jonah was God's. And here's the message. God allows his children hardships, but that is to save them from spiritual death. That's to spare him from his death, from his wrath. It's, he lets his children taste a glimpse of his wrath so that they would call out to him. Think about this. God is sovereign. It's clear from this passage that God is in, in control of the tempest and, and casting of lots. The Lord could have stopped if he wanted to. He could have stopped Jonah from coming to this point at any step of the way. For example, there could have been, when Jonah came to Joppa, there could have been simply no ships available. There could have been no room available for the ship, in the ship. God in his providence could have prevented that. But God allows Jonah to go into the ship. He allows him to be thrown into the sea. God allows Jonah to hit rock bottom. I think this is something some of us can relate to. And the Christian life has its ups and downs. And allow me to give you an illustration of how this might look like in our lives. I've, I've said in the previous sermon that we all, are, we all are descending further and further away from God because of our sins and one little sin. What we consider little, little sin is enough for that to happen. And Jonah's story reminds me of Nate Larkin. Nate Larkin. Maybe you know who he is. Perhaps you've heard about him. He's the founder of Samson Society, an accountability ministry. There's a video where he talks about his own struggles. He struggled something like two decades with pornography and worse things. The part that I find particularly, particularly relevant is the part where he says that his life was out of control. He says that he lost any hope of stopping what he was doing. He says, I remember so many times screaming at God as I pulled away from some place I shouldn't have been, banging on the steering wheel. Take this away. I don't want to do this anymore. He never answered that prayer. Eventually, I concluded God didn't exist or he didn't care. Today, I'm so glad that he didn't answer that prayer. One day, Nate Larkin gets caught by his wife watching porn. He doesn't know how long she was there, but she was crying. A few days later, his wife found out more, worse things. This time, she wasn't crying. She said to him, I'm done. I love you, but I don't like you. I don't trust you. I don't respect you. 
And I don't believe that you can ever change That's rock bottom, hopeless, and hopeless situation. Perhaps you can see your own situation in Nate Larkin's story. There are ups and downs in the life of Christians. Perhaps you feel driven away from the sight of God. Perhaps it's because of sin disobedience. Maybe you're struggling with doubts or hardships. But what Nate Larkin's wife told Nate Larkin is what it took for Nate Larkin to get out of his private room. He thought that everything was over, but that's when his accountability ministry started. We might feel hopeless, but God doesn't give up. What we think is rock bottom is a condition that God can use. So if you feel like you're at rock bottom or you're reaching rock bottom, don't give up. God is almighty. There is no condition that he cannot save us from. Call out to God because salvation belongs to the Lord. He's able to save as an almighty God and willing to save as a loving father. Jonah knew this. In verse 8, he confesses, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Why does he say that? To contrast his reality because he doesn't serve vain idols. He serves a living God. And we serve a God whose love is steadfast. And here's the important part of the passage. Jonah is far from perfect, but Jonah knows where God's steadfast love can be found. Where would that be? He knew that he can find steadfast love in the temple. When Jonah felt driven away from God, he says in verse 4, Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Again in verse 7, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah, at his last moments, thought of the temple. His prayers came to the temple. And what, and what is the primary function of the temple? Offering sacrifices. There weren't chefs in the temple cooking medium-rare lamb chops. There were priests offering burnt offerings. And there's a reason why it's called burnt offering. They were completely burned. Imagine the temple. Imagine the the temple reeking with the stench of burnt meat. 
the stench that, that spreads from the bronze altar. And those animals were sacrificed on the behalf of God's people. They laid their hands on the animal before they slaughtered it and before they burned it to the core, to ashes. Jonah is arguably the worst prophet ever. But God saves him on the basis of the sacrifices done in the temple, not by virtue of blood of goats and bulls, but because those sacrifices pointed to Christ. Those sacrifices were a shadow of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Already for Jonah, it was God who provided a way of salvation. So Jonah rightly confesses, salvation belongs to the Lord. And this is how God saves Jonah. Instead of driving Jonah away, God drove his beloved son Jesus away. Jesus was driven away from the sight of God, and he cried out in the depths, in the depths of God's wrath, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see and understand that Jesus was driven away and forsaken that Jonah might be drawn to God? It's only through Jesus Christ. And we are drawn to God exactly the same way. So do you know where to find God's steadfast love only in Jesus Christ. Have you thought what the sacrifice, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ means to you? Have you grappled with it? We're saved through Jesus Christ just as Jonah was. And that's why I said in the beginning that we are Jonah. As Jonah was saved from God's wrath through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, so are we Spiritually, spiritually, we make the same journey as Jonah. God teaches us that truth through a visible and tangible sign. We too are thrown into water, the water of our baptism. Why? So that we might be baptized into Christ Jesus, into his death. We are united to Christ through our baptism. Listen to the Apostle Paul. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. And what's the purpose of that? In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. When I was referring to the physical death and salvation from physical death, we were talking about the future reality, but deliverance from spiritual death is a present reality. Paul is saying that we are already spared from spiritual death because he says in the same passage, so you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do you believe this? And do you live out of this reality? Already now, we walk in newness of life. That means we already live as God's children. We live a life not surrounded by God's wrath, but a life 
surrounded with God's steadfast love. And that's only because God granted us salvation through Jesus Christ, through his Son. So just as Jonah experienced God's salvation by looking towards the temple, look to Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God's grace dwells fully. Jesus Christ is the salvation that the Lord provides for us. And let that sink in. And as we praise God, may we confess with Jonah that salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen.